So when I was six years old, I was a year one in a year two class. And if you're a teacher, you know that those kids that get bumped up a year, they get a little bit scrappy, don't they? They get a little bit fierce. And I was only bumped up because I was old. It wasn't because I was clever, don't worry. Um, but one time at the end of the school day, uh, I was queuing up to leave the playground and go home with my mum. And teachers among us will know it all gets a bit jostly at the end when the kids are leaving school. Everyone's going to push past, get to the front, get out to see their parents or whoever's come to pick them up as soon as possible. And I was there, I was trying to push past all these people, a little scrappy, scrappy-do year one. And um, is it still called year one, by the way? Has it changed? Yeah, great. Um, and then I was having this little scrap with these people in front of me trying to push past. And um, this, this kid in front of me turns around and shoves me. And I get shoved into the kid behind me. And he turns around and he starts shouting at me. He's like, what are you doing? What's going on? I'm like, sorry, didn't mean to. So he responds by kicking me in the face. Just because I bumped into him. So it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault. Totally innocent. I got pushed into him. He kicked me in the face. So my response naturally was to jump at him and to attack him. And normally you might think I might kick him back. I might punch him in the face. But I didn't think that. I didn't think punch. I didn't think kick. I thought bite. I thought, I've got to take this guy down. And I launched myself at him, little scrappy new year one, and I bit him right here on the eyebrow, and I just clamped on. And what happened next uh, still haunts me to this day. It haunts that kid, Michael. It haunts his parents. It haunts the kids witnessed. Uh, part of his eyebrow actually came off in my mouth. True story, true story. I'm really sorry, everyone. And uh, I remember this feeling of sort of slightly hair in the mouth, a bit fleshy. It wasn't the full thing. And um, his eyebrow came off, and uh, everyone, 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 at this point, it all kicked off. The teacher was in uproar. I went home, and my mum shouted at me. I had to write a letter to the kid that I bit the eyebrow off, understandably. Uh, there's a, there a lot of problems when you're, when, you're, when you're a year one who's just bitten someone's eyebrow off. That's pretty, that's kind of almost psychopathic behavior at that stage of your life. So you've got a bit of a red flag against you. But I, I bit this guy's eyebrow off, and I remember the next few days of, 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 of your little six-year-old Adam's life, uh, the picture of me behind you, we will see from when I was six. And you might think to yourself, look how cute and innocent I was, if it works. If not, don't worry. Anyway, I remember thinking, I, I felt so ashamed and so guilty about what I'd done. I felt, how could I have done this? How could I have done this? And I remember everyone telling me, what did you do? Why did you do this? What did you do? Why did you do this? You can't really explain it, but you just know, there I am. I'm on the sort of the slightly taller one. Look at that innocence. Look at those big incisors at the front as well. <laughs> they can bite some eyebrows. I'm warning you. And um, when you've bitten someone's eyebrow off, you do feel a lot of shame. You do feel a lot of shame and a lot of guilt about what you've done. And especially when you have to write a letter, which is quite a big ask of a six-year-old, I think. I wouldn't write, ask a six-year-old to write a letter. I don't know if they can write. I don't think I could at that age. I can't really write now. Um, but there I was, innocent six-year-old, feeling this sense of shame and guilt having bit someone's eyebrow off. And today's story we're looking at in the Bible is from John 4, the story of the woman at the well. And that's a woman who felt a lot more shame than just a six-year-old biting off someone's eyebrow. A woman who went through significant trauma and trouble in her life and was taken from a place of shame to a place of honour by Jesus. And uh, we're doing this series at the moment called Jesus Loves Everyone, all looking about the teachings of Jesus in the, in the Gospel of John, about what he what, his, what he says to us as people, what he says about us. And today it's Jesus understands everyone. So how does he understand us? How does he relate to us, the eyebrow biters that we are, the woman at the well that we might be? And I've been thinking a lot about shame and, uh, and guilt in particular as, a, as an eyebrow biter. And um, the culture that we're in today is, is one of intense kind of shame and one of intense, I think, exposure of sort of scandal and shame. Uh, we've seen in the last few months all the stuff with uh, Harvey Weinstein kicking off in the, in the news and 
um, someone being exposed for what they've done and all these women having to come forward for, for stuff that they've held on to for years and years that's, that's kind of shamed them, that's embarrassment they felt awful about. And everyone's turned on Harvey Weinstein, everyone's pushed him away, everyone's kind of done as much as they can to distance themselves from him, to drop their name from his films, to drop their name from, from their projects that they're doing. Uh, Brendan Cox, the widow of Joe Cox, was also uh, in the news recently for having um, some sexual assault allegations against him when he was still married uh, to Joe Cox. And uh, we've seen this happening again and again and again with Oxfam in Haiti. It's something that's really in the news at the moment about this sense of scandal and outrage as we were looking at earlier, those headlines. Uh, This story is a scandalous story and there's a high level of shame that we see in the story today, just as we see in our culture at the moment. And I've been really interested by uh, what's our response to these people. So what's been our response as a kind of humans to, to Harvey Weinstein and Brendan Cox? And basically everyone seems to, like I said, just push away from them. So we draw lines and we say, you've done wrong, you've done this. We seek to wash our hands, cut all our ties, draw away from them. And I was thinking about what does Jesus do when he encounters people that have done something wrong, when he encounters people that have had something uh, done to them that they're victims of? And his response is to draw in. So where we draw lines, Jesus draws in. He comes close to people and he offers them life, he offers them life in its fullness. And uh, he offers that to, to both the victim and, and, the, and the accused, the abused and the abuser. And that's a truth that, that kind of really gets us and doesn't make sense to our sense of justice. But in our, in our culture of shame and outrage and scandal, uh, Jesus is, offers the same love to, to the Harvey Weinsteins of the world as well as he does to those who are his victims, regardless of what they've done. He seeks to love them and not, not condemn them or judge them, but seeks to offer forgiveness and reconciliation for, for the wrongs that have been done to them. So we're going to dive into our passage, John 4. It'll be on the screen behind us, and I'm going to read it out to us. So you can follow up behind me on the screen. I need to get your Bibles out. So John 4 starts with, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. So our story is based in this town of Sychar in Samaria, at this site called Jacob's Well. And at Jacob's Well today... Uh, is a refugee camp uh, on the kind of Israel-Palestine border. And uh, at the time of our story today, at the context where uh, Jesus met this woman, uh, Sychar was a kind of a contested land. It was a land where lots of displaced people ended up. So this woman in our story is probably some kind of refugee. We're not sure for sure, but her people have been moved from place to place. And uh, living in this town of Sychar in Samaria, uh, Samaria also famously known in the Bible for uh, sort of the Good Samaritan, where we see someone kind of be at the that Jesus tells of someone's beaten up and left for dead. Uh, so I don't think Samaria is a particularly nice place, not a particularly pleasant place, a difficult place to, to live, a difficult place to be a woman in, in the context of our story today. Uh, and she was a kind of a displaced person in a disputed land. And we read in verse 7, So this Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. And I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So this woman's come to Jesus 
And if you remember in verse 6, we saw that Jesus came to her and it was noon. So the hottest point of the day, this woman is there at the well, alone with Jesus. And the significance of her being alone is that noon is the hottest point of the day. It makes the least sense to go and get water, the hottest, most tiring point of the day. And also, uh, she's totally by herself. So in the context of... um, of Sychar and women going to get stuff from the well. They'd always be going groups because uh, it was a social activity to draw water from the well and it was also for their security and their safety. So people would travel in groups, kind of have a little natter around the well and also to make sure there were no bandits from the Samaritan road that were going to attack them, that were going to rob them, anything like that. But uh, the woman that we're uh, learning about today uh, is by herself. She's alone. She doesn't belong. She doesn't have a social group. She doesn't have a friendship group and she doesn't have a sense of safety or protection around her. So people don't even want to be her kind of her mates. People don't want to be a part of her story, don't want to associate with her. And we'll delve into a bit more of why that is. But she's not supposed to be there by herself. She should have friends with her, should have protection, should have that sense of community. But she's been denied that. She's been isolated from that, outcast from that. And now she's talking to this guy who, who shouldn't really be talking to her. Jews don't associate with Samaritans. They're in a dispute for land. They're in a dispute for where they are. They shouldn't be talking to her. And she feels guilty, the fact that he's talking to her. And Jesus says, I offer you living water. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that talks to you, he'd give, him, he'd give you living water. And this is a, a picture of bubbling water, water springs. We might know it from kind of geysers in uh, Iceland and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but living water, as, as Jesus calls it here, uh, for the um, Samaritans, for the people of Jesus' time, I would have known living water as being literally like the picture behind us, as being like this kind of bubbling water that bubbled up. Um, so it's a very visual, very real metaphor for something, which actually is what they, that they would know. So they would know living water as, as a thing, not just kind of a concept or an idea that we talk about. But Jesus, would, uh, Jesus is offering this living water for this woman. She can, uh, she can picture this. So this is what she knows. This is what she knows the world to look, look like. This is what she knows living water to look like. And uh, Jesus isn't just referring to, to the physical, practical living water. He's referring to the living water of the Holy Spirit, the living water that bubbles up inside us like these springs, that refreshes us, that renews us, that fills us. That's what the living water that Jesus is offering her means. And as we continue on with our story, the woman replies to Jesus, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? She's thinking there's literally going to be a bubble or a spring at the bottom of this well. She's completely missed the point, basically. Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water from this well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is what the living water of Jesus is all about, this spring of water inside us, this very physical, visible sense of the Holy Spirit at work in us, bringing us life, bringing us fullness in all that we do, leading us into eternal life. The story continues in verse 15, where again the woman pings back at him and says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Pause it right there. This woman's had five husbands. That would be pretty scandalous in today's day and age, isn't it, to have five husbands, to have five different partners, that sort of thing. 
But this woman's had five husbands. And interestingly, the divorce laws uh, of this time meant that women couldn't divorce their husbands. It was only the, the husbands that could divorce their wives. So this is a woman that's been divorced five times. So she's been left five times. She's been removed of her value, of her worth, of her dignity five times in her life. And we don't even we don't know the full fullness of that story. We don't know why that happened. We don't know what the background was. We don't know what the domestic arguments were about. But whatever happened, she's been hurt, hasn't she? She's been left alone. She's been abandoned repeatedly, five times, different husbands. And her identity becomes kind of in her mistakes and her shame. So she, she she's obviously not wanting to disclose information. She's kind of slightly taken aback, I think, as we read on into verse uh, 19. So she says to him, sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. So I think normally when, when someone exposes something to us quite significant uh, about a sense of shame, about something of our identity, you'd probably react quite, um, quite harshly, wouldn't you? You'd probably be quite taken aback. But she quite quickly wants to move on, tell him he's a prophet. And then here we go. She gets into a theological debate with him, as you do. So she says, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied. And when he says woman here, he's not being kind of harsh like woman, do this, do that. He's treating with the same level of dignity and respect that Jesus would treat his own mother with. So this term woman in this context is is how Jesus would relate to his mother. So he's already applying a real sense of value and worth and dignity to her life. This woman that's had five husbands, that's living with someone that isn't her husband, that's living in a sense of shame and scandal, that's left alone at the well without friends, without protection, without security, without safety. He says to her, with all the respect that he would his own mother. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, for we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. This woman wants to be known and she wants to be understood. Jesus has already shown her that he knows her story. He knows a bit about what, you know, why she's come to this well alone. He knows about the five husbands. He knows that she's not living with someone she's married to. And uh, he really relates to her kind of emotional experience. And, and now he speaks to her in more, more of a knowledge-based environment. So I, I kind of think that uh, Jesus speaks to her in this emotional way uh, as a kind of experience-based application. And then he speaks to her here in kind of a bit more detail, a bit more kind of prophetic picture, uh, speaking to her in truth, uh, in knowledge. So Jesus is speaking to her of the spirit and truth, uh, worshipping God in spirit and truth, and is uh, calling her to that by modelling it to her. So he's saying to her, come and experience this living water, come and experience the spirit bubbling up within you. And also, here's the truth about what's happening. Here's the knowledge that you can apply to your life. Here's what this means to you. It's that kind of uh, journey of both knowing the experience of what it means to know him, uh, in, in its both a head sense and a heart sense almost, if you like. And then the story ends uh, with the woman saying to him, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everyone, everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Drop the mic, Jesus. The Messiah is here. Her freedom has come. And the living water, this Holy Spirit, this cleansing that brings her freedom has come. This eternal life that she's offered has come to her. And she's taken from a place of shame to a place of honour. This place of fear and abandonment, left alone at the well, left alone to travel in a place of kind of danger. And she's brought it from the fear to freedom. And this is a gospel 
in its, in its truth. It's not just about us getting a one-way ticket to heaven, but it's about our identity, our purpose, our value being defined in Jesus, being found in the fullness of life that he gives us, the living water, this kind of active sense of Holy Spirit at work inside us. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And uh, this really challenges me, Jesus approached this woman, because I don't think I'd respond to a woman like that like he does. I think I'd be a bit more kind of, oh, I know she's bad news. I've heard about her. She's got a backstory to her. And that's often our default, isn't it? We often kind of default to that sort of slightly judgmental sense. Um, following on from the kind of Harvey Weinstein story, I was um, interested to read about Matt Damon in the last few weeks, uh, who says that we need to correct the culture of outrage of a sexual harassment. And uh, Matt Damon has, in this interview, and you can Google the video and you'll see it, where he, he kind of seeks to sort of um, both defend and condemn the victims and Harvey Weinstein at the same time. So he's kind of trying to cover all the bases of this person did this, this person did that, this person did this. I doesn't know what to do, but he's kind of trying to bring calm to a, to a culture of outrage, but he can't do it. He ends up being judgy. He ends up pointing fingers and, and leaving the blame at people because he's not Jesus. So he's never going to be able to bring kind of true freedom to a culture of outrage. Uh, even in the past week, uh, some of you who follow the news may have, may have seen the story of Jamie Carragher, uh, the Sky Sports pundit. There he is, mid, mid-gob. And he's about to spit, uh, spit a load of water on a 14-year-old girl in the car next to him. So this week, there's a story that broke out where uh, Jamie Carragher, the Sky Sports pundit and former Liverpool player, uh, was driving on the motorway and being goaded, as he said, uh, by the, this guy in the car next to him. And eventually, on the fourth time of being goaded, uh, 38-year-old Jamie Carragher's natural response was to spit on his 14-year-old daughter. Um, so he's lost his job. He's been suspended from his work with Sky. Everyone's been really kind of outraged by what he's done. And... Um, People love to kind of point the finger, don't they? They love to blame people. They love to kind of say, what he's done is awful, what he's done is dreadful. Um, but there's, not, there's no chance of forgiveness. There's no chance of re- reconciliation. And there's no chance of kind of Jamie Carragher to let go of this old identity, to let go of the mistakes that he's made. Uh, he will now forever have on his CV as a pundit the fact that he once spat on a 14-year-old girl. And as abhorrent as that is, as disgusting as that is, uh, we as Christians need to be the people that uh, seek to forgive people like that. They need to look at them with a, with a sense of peace and a sense of justice as opposed to this sense of like, he, he, got, he needs to get what he's got coming to him. He needs to lose his job. He needs to be punished. He needs to be hurt for what he's done. It's our job amidst a culture of scandal and outrage where people take offense easily to show people what is truly offensive to our culture. And what's truly offensive to our culture is this gift of salvation that Jesus offers us. It should offend us that Jesus offers salvation to both the abused and the abuser. It should hurt us and it should confuse us because it's totally against the dominant worldview and ideology of our culture. It's totally against what people think we should say, how people think we should react to Harvey Weinstein and Jamie Carragher. The fact that Jesus still says, I still love you. I still want to understand you. I still want to bring you into a place of reconciliation, a place of freedom and a place of honor. Tim Keller, the New York pastor, said that uh, the gospel, the good news that Jesus offers, is an exclusive truth, but it's the most inclusive, exclusive truth in the world. It takes a lot uh, to be willing to accept the salvation of Jesus. It takes a lot to be willing to um, let go of our old identity and our old self, to to know the life that Jesus brings, to accept this living water. And it feels feels like it costs us a lot. But what Tim Keller here is saying, that it's the most inclusive, exclusive truth. He doesn't deny that it's hard. He doesn't deny that it's painful to accept Jesus. But he says that whilst it's exclusive, it is the most inclusive, exclusive truth. 
And the woman at the well, she wants to be known, doesn't she? She wants to be understood. She's living in this culture of scandal. She's living in a sense of shame and outrage. And she wants to be known by people. She wants to be understood by people, as we all do. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be known by the people that we meet, known by our colleagues at work, our spouses, our friends, whatever. We all do. And uh, my most recent Netflix binge uh, was on the show Manhunt Unabomber. And there's a little picture of it here. Uh, Has anyone seen it? Give me a little wave. No, no one has seen it at 6.30 either. It's obviously just not a popular show. Uh, It is generally really good. And uh, this guy at the back, you may recognise him from Avatar. Uh, He still can't act like he couldn't in Avatar. Um, Avatar, one of my least favourite films of all time. Really sorry, Avatar fans. And uh, Manhunt Unabomber uh, follows the story of uh, the Unabomber. It's a true story. It's a kind of a dramatisation of a a true uh, manhunt for this guy, this guy with the creepy glasses here. Uh, He was in Night's Tale. That's a great film. And uh, the Unabomber, was famous for sending mail bombs to people in the, um, in the post that kind of exploded upon opening. And uh, he, he targeted specific people in specific industries and environments that kind of he had an issue with, he had a bugbear with. And uh, in, the fi- in the TV show, you kind of un- uncover his sort of motivation for why he did this. And eventually he gets caught um, through this guy, this guy from Avatar, um, reading into his uh, letters that he sent alongside his bombs, and reading into his political manifesto, and really seeking to understand him as a person understand his motivations, and then eventually they were able to catch him through appealing to his brother. And uh, the Unabomber's motivation was just to be understood. So he, he, he used to write letters to the newspapers alongside his bombs saying, could you publish this manifesto I've got for a greater picture of America, a greater vision of where America could be. And uh, it, was sca- it, was, it doesn't really make sense to think the best way to get heard is to, to bomb people, to kill people. And it might not be your reaction to be known and understood to bomb people. But that was his motivation, was simply, I just want to be understood. I just want people to read my, my political thoughts. I want people to read my ramblings. I want people to recognise me as someone who's clever, someone who matters, someone who's important, someone who has a different way of doing things that, that deserves to be recognised, that deserves to be understood. And we all want that sense of experience. We all want that sense of knowledge of being known and understood. And we're not going to be driven to those highness acts, I don't, I don't hope. We want to be known by the world, don't we? We want to have that sense of recognition and understanding. And that's where Jesus speaks to this woman today. In her sense of shame, in her sense of feeling judged, he seeks to offer her life through living, his living water. He seeks to offer his Holy Spirit. He seeks to say to her, I know everything that you've done. I know what's happened to you. I know your story. I understand the pain and the hardship that brings. But I'm here to bring you living water. I'm here to bring you hope. I'm here to bring you freedom where you, you feel a sense of shame, where you feel a sense of fear. I understand what you've gone through. I understand how hard your life is. And uh, the challenge for us in this story is uh, w- our heart towards our, the world around us. Uh, if you've been tracking of Jesus for a long time, if you've been following Jesus for, for, for 15 years, 20 years, 5 years, whatever it is, uh, we, we always need to ask ourselves a question. What's our heart towards the world? Do we truly believe that uh, Jesus is for everyone, that Jesus loves everyone? Or do we think he's just for those who, who look like us, who, who sound like us, who spend like us, earn like us? Uh, our approach to the gospel needs to see it as this incredibly inclusive truth that's scandalous and offensive to our culture because it proclaims freedom and it proclaims life and it proclaims love to people that our culture doesn't deem worthy of that. The Harvey Weinsteins and the Brendan Coxes, the people that have committed sin and shame and have, have got kind of copy books of, of guilt longer than longer than our arms but Jesus still offers them his love Jesus still understands them Jesus still meets them where they're at our story uh, with the li- with the woman at the well concludes uh, by looking at Greek Orthodox tradition so in the Greek Orthodox Church uh, the woman at the well is venerated as a saint 
she's given the name Fatini, and she's remembered uh, in the Greek Orthodox Church as as a really significant character in the story of the gospel, a really significant character in the early church. Uh, as we know from reading the reading the gospel, she's the first evangelist, so she's the first person that kind of shares the good news of what Jesus has done for her, um, done for them, having met Jesus. And she, the Orthodox Church really make a big deal about this. They really play up how important she is to kind of the advancement of Christian faith. And I read some books that showed the kind of um, the story of Fatini, this woman at the well, of where she went, what happened to her. And uh, she followed up this calling to be an evangelist across kind of Mediterranean and kind of Eastern Europe where she, where she lived. And uh, she kind of proclaimed the gospel. She preached the good news of Jesus everywhere that she went. And uh, eventually she ended up um, talking to the daughter of the Roman Emperor Nero about Christianity. And she saw this daughter of the emperor uh, come to faith. So this daughter come to come to know Jesus, to accept him, to accept his gift of salvation. And uh, she was martyred by Nero. And uh, nor- normally the way people get martyred would, would be at this stage, maybe some kind of crucifixion, maybe some kind of torture. And the torture that was uh, chosen for her by Nero was to be thrown in a well. So this kind of cruel twist of irony that this woman's life, uh, as we know it kind of in, in the Christian tradition, uh, starts through being met at a well by Jesus, being offered living water that doesn't run out. Uh, she is then kind of thrown to her death at the end, down a well. And I don't say it just to say, look look what I found, that's interesting. I tell you that to show that this changes our lives, what Jesus does. This changes our lives, what Jesus offers us. And uh, this takes someone who, who has a sense of shame and a sense of guilt and a sense of uh, abandonment and loss, and it uh, leads her into a life of evangelism, leads her into a life where the year of invitation becomes a life of invitation where she does anything and everything she can to, to travel the world, to tell people about Jesus, to share the story of what he's done for her life, of how he's, she's been understood, she's been known, she's been seen, she's been loved. And as we come into land today, we're going to reflect a bit about uh, our attitudes towards our world and also where it is in our life that we need to kind of invite Jesus in again, where we feel a sense of shame and guilt. And uh, Dan's going to come up and, and play a song for us uh, as we respond. And I just invite you to just reflect during the song I'm not saying to you stand up, but I invite you to read the lyrics because the song that we're singing today is one that uh, Dan's written for us over the last few weeks. So we've written a song that's kind of the narrative of the woman at the well. We're in the song from kind of her perspective about what does it mean to know Jesus? What does it mean to be taken from this, this shame, this guilt, and to be given a new identity, to be shown a higher and a better way, to be changed by the living water of Jesus? So as, as we hear this song sung over us, as, as, we, as we reflect I invite you to read the lyrics, just to hear what Dan's singing over you and the guys behind us. Just read them on the screen. And uh, just ask God, ask the Holy Spirit, uh, what is it in your life where you need to, to let go of? Is it, a sense of? is it a sense of shaming someone else? Have you been the one that's been the first to point the finger and judge? Or is there something in your heart, in your, in your identity that you've held on to where you've, you feel judged, where you feel a sense of shame or a sense of guilt? And you could have buried that for years and years and years. And we're not going to do open heart surgery and ask you to tell everyone what that is. But I just say, I just encourage you just to clock that, just to really tune into what God might be saying, what might be highlighting to you in your life. And just let Dan and the guys sing over you and read the words of this song. <laughs> 